You're listening to a podcast series produced for the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease. GOLD works with healthcare professionals and public officials around the world to raise awareness and to improve the prevention and treatment of COPD. Welcome, and thank you for joining us on this episode of the podcast. My name is Mike Hess, and I am a respiratory therapist with the COPD Foundation. Today, we're going to be discussing the new GOLD strategy report coming out on World COPD Day, November 16th, 2022. This year's theme for World COPD Day is Your Lungs for Life, which reflects some of the major changes in, in the report and its increased focus on etiology and subtypes of COPD. I'm very excited to be discussing the new GOLD report with two of the leading voices in the COPD world today. Uh, with me is Dr. Melan Han, Professor and Chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Michigan. She is a member of the Scientific Advisory Committee for GOLD, a member of the board of the COPD Foundation, and the author of a fantastic book on lung health for the lay public called Breathing Lessons. Also joining the conversation is Dr. Ruth Talsinger, President and Chief Executive Officer of the COPD Foundation. Ruth is internationally recognized as a patient-focused innovator, healthcare leader, and clinical scientist with extensive research and development experience, not to mention her advocacy leadership. Dr. Han, Dr. Telsinger, I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. As I mentioned, there are some pretty significant changes in this year's Gold Report. One of the ones that struck me as one of the most major is a change in the formal definition of COPD seems like it's been streamlined while also placing more emphasis on heterogeneity. Can you comment a little bit on the evolution of how we've defined COPD over the years and what this change means now? Yes, so maybe I'll start by commenting that this is truly an exciting time with the Gold Report because it, in addition to the Lancet Commission that reported earlier in September this year, it suggested changes to the definition of COPD, which highlights the fact that progressive action needs to happen if we're going to stop COPD in its track. It's, and really, for me, it's around early COPD and, and making sure that patients are diagnosed. The most exciting change in the definition, from my perspective, is the elevation of importance of symptoms like breathlessness, cough, and mucus relative to measures of lung function that were always used to define COPD, but also to look at the impact of a variety of interventions on COPD. Symptoms matter to patients and they occur in people early in the disease process while lung function could be in the normal range. And there are great tools that help us report how a patient feels to clinicians, but there are also other tools that, uh, like lung imaging, that can show that a person has early lung disease. And I think that including those considerations in the gold strategy have, um, has really the potential to have a great impact on early diagnosis, but also on the development of new treatments. And I've personally, as a researcher, have seen many promising treatments for lung disease fail because we studied them too late in the disease process or because they did not change lung function and elevating the importance of new measures that are meaningful to clinicians and to patients beyond lung function is really promising. And I think that is truly really, really exciting uh, in terms of the GOLD report. Another important change in GOLD is that we always say that COPD is heterogeneous, but recognizing risk factors beyond tobacco smoking and the fact that COPD can result from genetic and or environment interactions that occur through the lifetime of a person, 
as different types of COPD. And it really highlights the fact that we've always said anyone can get COPD and supports this growing wave. And Dr. Han's book really highlights that, recognizing the importance of lung health that uh, intensified during and after the COVID-19 pandemic. We're, we're really dealing uh, with a need to sound the alarm and acknowledge that COPD is a public health crisis, or as Dr. Han, uh, Milan, you, you recently called COPD a pandemic, and I totally agree with that. Yes, I agree yeah. with all that, Ruth, thank you. You know, I, when I think about this uh, definition a bit more and, and the changes that Gold has made, I think one important thing that you highlighted is that we're trying to broaden the umbrella a bit because when we look at a lot of the research that's been done from the past few years from landmark studies like COPD genes, bromics, as well as uh, some of the cohorts in Europe, we're really understanding that you can have a lot more abnormality that isn't necessarily picked up just on spirometry. So while spirometry is still key to understanding airflow obstruction and to guiding diagnosis, treatment, and understanding severity, I think this, this new definition makes the umbrella larger. And we start uh, bringing in the concepts of pre-COPD and PRISM, as well as identifying the fact that some patients may have structural abnormalities that are not picked up on spirometry. They may have other types of physiologic abnormalities that perhaps don't meet the strict uh, spirometric uh, definition. And so I think that by kind of both refocusing but also broadening the umbrella a bit, I do think it's important because it, I think as you said, Ruth, really kind of raises the alarm uh, in terms of the number of people that have abnormalities or, or at risk for uh, progression. And, and really, I think these changes give rise to our shifting research approaches and, and also how we as clinicians and researchers need to be thinking about both the disease and treatments moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. So, and this really challenges the norm in terms of, uh, of disease testing diagnosis. But when, when I look from an intervention perspective, this is really that could help with uh, prevention possibly a cure someday if we start looking at earlier disease. I'll say as a respiratory therapist, I think broadening the umbrella, as you both have mentioned, is really going to help us in the advocacy world. I think it can really change the prevalent thinking today that COPD is just a smoker's disease. I've heard that many times from uh, many other respiratory therapists, too many times really, uh, as well as from other clinicians. That really has this kind of stereotype as something you only get from tobacco. That, of course, generates a certain stigma and really significant personal burden on people that have COPD. Of course, that's unfair in many ways because it makes these people feel like they've done this to themselves and therefore they're unwilling to speak up about it because they don't want to risk being guilted or shamed. They've probably had heard that sort of thing for a very long time now. And we really don't see that level of stigma with somebody who gets uh, cancer, for example, or Alzheimer's disease or even diabetes which are other diseases that can be influenced by life choices, environmental factors, and things like that over the course of one's life, just like we're finding with COPD. I do really think that broadening the umbrella will help us reduce that stigma, reduce those issues, and really help us strengthen the advocacy campaigns 
This is the third leading cause of death globally, but uh, lung issues in general just haven't really gotten much attention in the past. This seems like a tremendous opportunity to address that. You know, one of the things, Mike, that I think, you know, and Ruth touched on this a bit as well, but one of the things that really became more apparent to me during the pandemic uh, is that we have a lot of patients who may or may not fit our current definitions for COPD, but are experiencing lung injury of some sort. And I, I think this is what contributed to the high levels of morbidity and mortality that we've seen, sort of the unexpected levels of morbidity and mortality that we've seen uh, during the pandemic. And so one of the things I really like uh, about the GOLD update is that it tries to better and more comprehensively help us understand the, the depth and breadth of this disease. So yes, FEV1's important, but uh, there is an expanded focus in the updated document on other things like structural abnormalities that we can pick up on CT scans, uh, for instance. So by really kind of expanding our focus beyond just spirometry, I'm hoping that this will ultimately lead us towards new new ways of characterizing patients and ultimately more precision therapies. So I, I think that the continued refinements that we're seeing with the gold strategy uh, also really elevate sort of the pathways of symptoms and exacerbations that we also need to be thinking about. So I think one of the things that a lot of times people forget or perhaps misunderstand is that the original ABCD designations are actually meant for initial diagnosis and initial treatment. And then after that, we really have to tailor our strategies. So the concept of following symptoms and, and monitoring and following up treatment for that, the concept of doing the same uh, for exacerbations is, I think, even further emphasized in this update. But I think one thing that, that you mentioned is, is really important here is, is recognizing that there are different risk factors. I think that is something that is really becoming more um, accepted, in, in, again, with GOLD and, and with the Lancet Commission. And I think that when I think about spirometry, it's not that it's not important and it's been fantastic in helping us develop treatments uh, addressing lung function, but I look at it as treating hypertension after somebody has a stroke. So if we were to develop new treatments, we also need other measures that allow us to understand the fact that in early disease, lung function might be normal and might not meet the, the spirometric definition of the disease. And I think that to me is a total game changer, seeing that change in the GOLD report. You're absolutely right, Ruth. So by, by some of the while maybe perhaps seemingly subtle changes in the, in the definition, it really has, I think, broadened the definition of, of that COPD umbrella to include other things like pre-COPD, early COPD, mild COPD. And I think the update really has done a good job of really trying to help people understand how these things differ, why they differ, but in some ways why they all need to be considered as COPD. So when, for instance, in the document, they help us understand the differences between early COPD and mild COPD, where the difference really there is, for one thing, it's age, <laughs> helping us to identify patients uh, earlier. Um, we can be much more precise in the way we 
talk amongst ourselves, the way we conduct research, and ultimately, hopefully, uh, better expand uh, screening and early diagnosis, which has been a huge, huge problem in the field. We've got many patients, the majority of patients, I think, right now are picked up quite late. And this has really hampered our ability to develop disease-modifying therapies. It's become sort of this vicious cycle where patients get picked up late, then we try to enroll them into clinical trials, and then we fail to show, for instance, it's very difficult to show uh, d changes or alteration in FEV1 decline or mortality. And then groups like the uh, US Preventive Services Task Force continue to say, well, you know, there's no evidence to recommend uh, population-based screening, for instance, with spirometry. But it's important to remember that that's based on lack of evidence and not negative evidence. And it's hard to generate the evidence when people keep getting picked up late. So to me, that's one of the, the most important uh, changes in the document is really changing how we think about the disease to incorporate these patients that perhaps have not fit our traditional definitions, but clearly clearly have abnormality and, and need to both not just be studied, but also we need specific treatments for these patients with early disease as well. Can you go into a little more detail about the new subtypes of COPD? Recently, we've seen uh, things like the Lancet Commission report, a powerful article in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, and of course, the new gold report itself, emphasizing that COPD has several different subtypes, and emphasizing that even to a degree we haven't really seen before. Why is this new philosophy so important for research down the road and uh, potentially advocacy as well? Maybe I could start with that because to me, th those individuals who are non-smokers are excluded from a lot of the research studies and from a lot of clinical trials. And for me, this is really a progressive transformation, not just in the United States, but globally, that gives us attention to how critical it is to think about different origins of COPD. And we talked already about early COPD, but the whole idea that it isn't only about smoking and it is about anyone can get COPD. And it, if we are to prevent it and to develop treatments, we can't do it without investing, without think tanks, without um, everybody getting together and saying, let's increase investment in research on how to prevent it and, and defining those, I guess, in, in the gold uh, reported seven types, because it also could be a mixed uh, number of reasons that interact together or undefined, is to realize that smoking and maybe smoking and vaping are not the only reason for disease. To me, this is truly transformational. So I think it's important that people recognize that some of the thought process behind this really came from both the Lancet Commission that Ruth mentioned, as well as a paper in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine led by Bart Chelley. And it was both of those documents that we at Gold looked at to try to think about how to expand our thinking for COPD and really focusing, as Ruth said, on etiotypes. Uh, and I was actually at ERS when uh, Dr. Dransfield, who helped to lead the Lancet Commission, gave what I thought was a really, really good analogy, which was when we study another disease, which is pulmonary hypertension, it has really moved that field forward by grouping it into etiotypes. So 
we now have uh, different uh, types of pulmonary hypertension, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, idiopathic or related to chronic lung disease or connective tissue disease or secondary heart failure, et cetera. But it is incredible because if you think about, you know, studying therapies and the development of therapies for pH and pH, uh, that some of the therapies were great for certain etiotypes and not for others. And so why wouldn't that be the case for COPD? It probably is. The problem, as Ruth has pointed out, is that the majority of patients that we have studied have been uh, smoking related. Now, I suspect that when we look under the covers, they're probably, yes, these are all, you know, individuals who have smoked that we have studied, but I suspect that there are other influences that have been driving inflammation in these patients, and it wasn't only or all tobacco smoke, but it's definitely made it hard to sort out when that's the only kind of patient that we include. So if you look, for instance, at some of the data on biomass uh, fuel exposure, and that's another exposure that we know can cause COPD, we see, at least on the data that's available, that there is a difference in phenotype. These patients tend to have more airway center disease versus emphysema. The data, the data that came out from the Peter Lange paper in the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago, which identified that some people have rapid progression uh, for it to develop COPD and other people just have low peak lung function uh, in adulthood. This is the kind of thing we're talking about. We're talking about probably differences in how patients got the disease with one group, it being related to childhood exposures uh, or respiratory infections and another group more influenced probably by adult related risk factors. We have to figure out how to separate these kinds of patients and how to study patients differently. And then ultimately my hope is that we'll finally make some progress on precision medicine and uh, very specific therapies. But until we can start sort of winnow, you know, winnowing uh, the differences between these kinds of patients, I think it will continue to be very difficult for us to try to develop new classes of therapies. And when we think about it, we've only had one real new class of therapy for COPD approved in the last 20 years. Uh, and so I think it is these kinds of conceptual changes that are going to be needed if we want to advance things on the therapy front. Given these changes and looking at the different idiotypes of COPD, the different causes and factors, et cetera, et cetera, how can a primary care provider use this new paradigm to more effectively advocate on behalf of their patients? We know that a lot of folks out there don't necessarily have access to pulmonologists who are well-versed in the gold strategy or other state-of-the-art papers that have come out. So how can busy primary care providers who are taking care of this population use this new information to really have an immediate impact on their panel of people with COPD or those who may have COPD but are as yet undiagnosed? Well, I think one of the first things is that our you know, if you look at the sort of proposed nomenclature in the document, it goes through all of these various things that can influence the development of COPD. And I think that the first thing is that clinicians just have to be aware of these and do more expanded histories. And uh, first of all, think about the kinds of things that would put a patient at risk for COPD and not just stop at smoking and not just stop if patients don't actually actively report 
things because we know that patients will automatically limit their activities to avoid dyspnea. And so just asking a patient if they're short of breath may not be enough. We have to ask about cough and mucus production and exercise limitation. But, you know, when, you know so the first thing is genetically determined COPD. We have to do a lot better job of, of screening for at least the one thing we do know how to screen for easily in primary care, which is alpha-1. Uh, anatrypsin uh, deficiency. We, you know, every patient I see now, I ask about birth history. I ask about whether they were uh, born prematurely, whether uh, they had diff any respiratory difficulties as a child, whether they had frequent respiratory infections or pneumonia, ever were hospitalized for a respiratory issue for uh, as a child. I ask about whether they were ever told they had asthma or even you know, exercise-induced asthma at any point. And then I talk about exposures in the home growing up. Uh, we even know that maternal cigarette exposure, even in the prenatal period, can contribute to the development of abnormally long and tortuous airways that can uh, promote uh, the development of abnormal lung function. So, so all of that's important. And then I also talk about other kinds of exposures that we don't perhaps talk enough about in the workplace. Uh, there are a lot of things that we know can be harmful to the lungs besides tobacco smoke. So there's sort of those traditionally dusty or dirty jobs like construction work, or I live in Michigan, so we have a lot of people working in auto plants and, uh, you know, or uh, perhaps firefighters or, or military where we know that there are specific exposures. But I think we also neglect that there are other occupations uh, for instance, uh, nail technicians, uh, people who work in hair salons, et cetera, that may be coming into uh, contact with noxious vapors or dust that potentially could be harmful for the lungs. So I think the first thing is just being really, really aware of all of the things that can cause COPD and doing a really good thorough history. I recently saw someone in my office who had was 19, had started vaping a few years ago, but really tells me the story of lifelong breathlessness, even before he started vaping. And when I measured his lung function in the office, he had an uh, FEV1 of around 50% predicted, so essentially half normal at age 19, which is pretty scary, particularly for someone with no history of asthma. And when I talked to him, it turns out he was born prematurely, had a lot of respiratory difficulties as a child, and then it just simply, you know, went away. Nobody looked at it. So, and then now he is coming as an adult, has horrible lung function. And, you know, if he had not gotten lost to follow up, if his pediatrician had thought to check, if he'd ever gotten lung function before, then someone would have known. And furthermore, he might have made different life choices, right? He might have chosen not to vape. <laughs> he might have been more careful uh, about, uh, you know, how he protected his lungs and the kind of lifestyle um, that he led. And so I think for those, again, on the front lines, that includes not just adult pulmonologists, that includes primary care and pediatricians. We just have to start by being a lot more aware and having a much lower threshold for getting pulmonary function testing. So that's a kind of a long-winded answer to your question, Mike, but I think just this awareness piece is so, so important. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe I can add from a from an advocacy perspective is educating the public that anyone can get COPD because it, there is the perception, as Mike, you said that earlier around, it's just a smoker's disease, but also educating the public that you don't have to be 50 or 60 to have COPD, you could start early in life. And the public 
awareness is really critical, which is why we adopted that theme of, of anyone can get COPD because people should be aware. And Melan, as you said, could, people could make very different life choices if they know they are at risk of developing COPD. So this is clearly an exciting time in the world of COPD. There's a lot of new information coming out and some tremendous windows of opportunity opening for advocacy and research. I very much appreciate Dr. Melon Han and Dr. Ruth Talsinger sharing their insights with us today. And of course, thank you for spending time learning about this new paradigm. The New Gold Report comes out on November 16th, 2022 on World COPD Day. And for more information regarding the report, as well as the upcoming Gold International Conference, be sure to visit the Gold website at www.goldcopd.org. Thanks again, and stay safe out there. Please visit the Gold website at goldcopd.org for our up-to-date, evidence-based reports as well as other useful guides, documents, and resources. If you are a healthcare professional interested in gold resources for your hospital or healthcare system, or if you have ideas for new resources, please email us at our website at goldcopd.org. Thank you for listening and for sharing in our mission to reduce the global burden of COPD.